Well, it certainly is always an honor uh, to be invited to come and to preach the Word of God. It's always a pleasure to be with friends from times past. I appreciate the invitation and the opportunity. Many of you I know, many of you I do not know, and perhaps someday we will get the chance to get to know each other better. What you need to know about me right now is that I'm here to preach the Word of God, not Mike Pickfordism. I'm but a mere feeble man, very capable of mistakes and errors. I make a lot of them. If you don't believe me, ask my wife. And uh, so I exhort you to take your Bibles out and to open them up. Follow the noble example of those in Acts chapter 17 and verse 11. And search the Scriptures to find out whether these things are so. And if after careful examination you believe that I've taught the truth this morning, I exhort you to take these truths and apply them to your life. Teach them to others so that we may be faithful servants of the Lord. On the other hand, if you feel that I've taught error in any way, I certainly did not intend to do that. Please come to me, as brethren should, and let's talk about that together, sit down and study that together, and try to come to the right conclusion based upon His Holy Word. I'm going to begin my lesson this morning from Galatians chapter 5 and verse 15. And if you want a title for this lesson, we'll call it, Do Not Devour One Another. Now in the context here, we find this statement in Galatians 5.15, where Paul says, But if you bite and devour one another, beware, lest you be consumed by one another. And he's contrasting that statement to the, to the idea and the concept that love, if you can just get love down, love for God first and then love for your neighbor second, while you'll encompass the entirety of the law. Originally that same concept applied to the Old Testament law, and of course the same concept applies to the New Testament law. After all, if you love God first and foremost, you're not going to have an idol before Him. You're going to observe and respect His holy day. If you love your neighbor as you love yourself, you're not going to envy Him or covet His things. You're not going to seek to deceive Him or to murder Him because you love Him. So if you get love down, all the other things just fall into place. And those that uh, the churches of Galatia were acting in many ways, evidently, that were not loving. On the one hand, they had problems with these folks we call Judaizers. Uh, these were people who had spent most of their life as Jews following the Old Testament law, and it was hard to extract all that out of their hearts once they converted and become Christians. And there were even some who I believe were pseudo-Christians. They acted like they were converted. They came in as spies, as it were, among the people of God to try to impose Jewish teachings and Jewish traditions upon the Gentiles who had become Christians. Uh, they would try to impose things like circumcision, not merely as a physical act for cleanliness or medical reasons, but rather as a spiritual act, uh, indicating that that was still how one had a true covenant relationship with God. And that's just not so. And the book of Galatians deals with that. Others would come in and try to impose certain feast days and other things uh, from the Old Testament upon the Gentile converts. And Paul come in and say, you know, this is causing all kinds of problems. In the first place, uh, you're uh, really uh, polluting the gospel of Christ when you do so, and you're going to be a curse for doing that. 
But then on top of that, those who were trying to impose these things were actually bickering among themselves. And the result was becoming just a, a whole lot of chaos in which the result was that the brethren were about to devour one another. They were just at one another's necks all the time. When you read the, the imagery that's given here in verse 15, when he talks about biting and devouring one another, uh, one might call to mind an old Greek myth of a, of a snake fight that describes how one snake takes another by the, by the tail and, and swallows it whole. And on the other hand, you might think of bite and devour and consume, uh, and think about how that depicts the law of the jungle where wild animals prey upon one another and reduce their numbers accordingly. And this is what can happen to a Lord's church when brethren begin to bite and de- uh, devour one another. In the original language, the statement is in the present tense, indicating that this is something that was taking place among Paul's readers. It also implies a party spirit in which the Judaizers were not only attacking the Gentile converts, but as we said, uh, were at one another's throats as they disagreed and bickered about which elements of Moses' law must be kept in order for one to be a true child of God. The church today isn't necessarily plagued with Jewish converts trying to impose elements of the Old Testament law upon Gentile Christians, but the concept of biting and, and devouring and consuming one another is still very much alive today in many local bodies. Only the issues have changed. And if we claim that no such thing is present in our church, among our people, that's fantastic. But, but local churches who at one time could make the same boast failed to take the necessary precautions to prevent such a thing from happening and the results have been devastating in a local family. Such a thing can happen on one hand when, when false teaching begins to rear its head and, and uh, uh, causes folks to be led away by error. On the other hand, it can occur when petty complainers are allowed to go unchecked among God's people. When a church begins to say things like, uh, we have a couple in our group who like to complain about, about everything, but at least we don't have anybody trying to teach religious error. That church is setting itself up with a passive attitude toward the idea of bickering and complaining. And you wait five or six years down the road and see what happens to that group. The churches of Galatia had religious error among them, but it's possible for brethren to consume one another in the absence of error if the bickering and complaining isn't confronted and extinguished in a biblical and spiritual manner. We're talking about one another today, this morning, and Lord willing again this evening, as Josh indicated. We're talking about passages that uh, speak of one another. And the first thing that comes to mind, as it usually does with my mind, is all those one another passages that speak of how we ought to do things to one another. Love one another. Treat one another kindly. Be tender hearted and compassionate toward one another. Bear one another's burdens. But it occurred to me that there are some passages that are one another passages, and you find that mutual phrase there in those verses. 
And those passages are speaking of things not that we should do to one another, but things we should avoid doing to one another. Such as our passage in Galatians 5 and verse 15. We should not consume one another. And so along that line, I'm going to go negative as it were. And I want to look at some other passages. Passages from which we'll draw our main points this morning in talking about and discussing, if I can figure out how to push the right button, this idea of one another. And I want to suggest to you that if we want to prevent devouring one another, in the first place we must silence the evil speaking. It needs to be snuffed out. And speaking of idle talkers and deceivers, Paul wrote in Titus chapter 1 verse 11 that their mouths must be stopped. And so we recognize the the fact that there are some mouths that just need to be stopped. You don't need to let it go on and let it continue, ignoring it, not wanting to confront the offender. Those mouths need to be stopped. And I suggest to you that the thing, same thing is true not only with those who, who would take it upon themselves to preach deceptive doctrines, but also on those who would take it on themselves to be the town bickerer and the town complainer. If you read 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 10, Paul there reflects back upon the people of Israel in the Old Testament and talks about how God came in and consumed many of them and the very reason was named complaining. Complaining is something that God has always taken a dim view on. And He doesn't want that among His people. Because He recognizes how devastating it can be. James says in James 4 and verse 11, Do not speak evil of, watch it, one another. There we go. Do not speak evil of one another. Brethren, this is reminiscent of what James wrote only a few verses earlier in James chapter 3, verse 9 and 10, when he talks about the tongue and how small it is, but all the damage it can do. And he says there, with it we, we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Back in Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul is describing a society that God has pretty much turned over to their evil and wicked ways and their debased minds. And then he gives a long list of some of the uh, sins that they have committed, a, a list that reads a whole lot like the, uh, the trailer for the recent movie out in the theater. And in that list we find at the very end of verse 29 and the beginning of verse 30, they are whisperers. Backbiters. Haters of God. Now you think about how offensive it would be to be one who is a hater of God. And there it is right next to backbiters and whisperers. It's a disgusting thing when brethren run other brethren in the ground. Sometimes there are legitimate warnings that need to be given regarding some who are false teachers or trying to bring forth error. I get that. But very often it's just because we want to be whispering and backbiting because for some reason it gives us joy, makes us feel like heroes to be the one to bring forth this news to the ear of another. Why is that? I'm not sure, but it's something we need to put away from us. 
over in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31 and 32, and I think here about people who are, who are so impatient with one another. People who are so right. you got a whole room full of individuals in a room and every one of them thinks that they're right and their opinions are right and their ways are right to the exclusion of any other. That's the kind of people I picture when I read this verse in Ephesians 4 verse 31. Because I think about all these things that that attitude leads to and it says, Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And here's the answer. And be kind to one another. Tender hearted. Forgiving one another. Just as God in Christ forgave you. Matter of fact, this is extended beyond brethren. This concept of evil speaking in Titus chapter 3. In the first two verses. When Paul says, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, but rather be peaceable, be gentle, showing all humility to all men. But there's a second thing that I want to write on our hearts this morning regarding this idea of, of avoiding devouring one another. Not only uh, must we silence the evil speaking, But we need to stifle the envious strife. Restrain it. Prevent it. Extinguish it. Snuff it out. Envious strife. Go back to our original passage in Galatians chapter 5. And this time let's go down to verse 26. Incidentally, in between verse 15 and 26, you find the long discussion of the works of the flesh, the things that we ought to avoid, otherwise we lose our interest into the kingdom of God, followed by the fruit of the Spirit, the things, the characteristics that we should strive to develop in our lives and to grow so that we may be led by the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, and living in the Spirit. All that's in between these two verses, verse 15 and verse 26. And then in verse 26, he says, Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Conceited, vain glory, perhaps over knowledge or talents, such as leading singing, leading the prayers, even preaching. It could be because of their wealth or their occupation or even their bloodline and heritage. They begin to think of others in the church as being beneath them and they often treat them in disdainful or even uh, contemptible ways, looking down their noses at them and treating them as if they're subclass, less important members of the body. That's what Paul's talking about there when he talks about being conceited. Well, how does this affect those who are the recipients of such behavior? Well, it provokes them, doesn't it? Those whose talents are perhaps not as evident or pronounced, they're provoked to hard feelings or even to a point of where they want to seek revenge. All of this leads to envy on their part. And with all of this, strife results, and ultimately, brethren begin to devour one another. 
The church at Corinth had the same problem. God had blessed them richly with miraculous spiritual gifts which have ceased. But Corinth was very blessed with them. And instead of taking them and using them for the edification of the body and for the glorification of God, they used them for themselves selfishly. The tongues people would get up and say, boy, look at... Look at how great I am. I can speak in these tongues. And the, the prophet would get up and say, No, no, I'm better than you because I can have the gift of prophecy. And so they were using it as competition rather than as edification and encouragement. Taking things that were great gifts of God to puff themselves up and make themselves look good. That sound familiar? Paul brings them back to the idea of family. He said, you know, we're a body. We're like the human body. And we complement one another. You think about that little toe on the end of your foot. You don't think about it much, do you? But whack it on the table. And the rest of the body comes forward to try to aid and assist. Cut that toe off and see how long it takes you to learn to walk again with good balance. It's not a part of the body that we usually see on one another. It's hidden, as it were, working in the, in the back. Doing tremendous and glorious things for the rest of the body. That's the way some Christians are. They're not out there working in the limelight. Perhaps they don't serve in the public service as much. But you can count on them to be visiting with that widow and making sure brother so-and-so has what he needs and checking on that family. And he's the first one to open up his wallet in secret somewhere to hand a family in need. And you don't even hear about those things. And so that's the concept we need to come back to to overcome this idea of provoking one another and envying one another. You know, the antithesis of envy is contentment. And Paul says contentment with godliness is great gain. First Timothy chapter 6 and verse 6. And here we are, we're so petty. We envy the talents and abilities and possessions of others because uh, we haven't learned to be content with the things God has blessed us with. And instead of using and improving our own abilities, we begin to unfairly criticize others because of their talents. You know, there's a story I heard recently about teachers. This teacher was going to teach her children a lesson about how, you know... Pretty things come in ugly packages sometimes and vice versa. And so she had taken some brown paper bags and, and filled them with candy and glittery things and put them on the table. And then she took some beautiful, colorful bags uh, that had been decorated up real nice and pretty and put them there and just put plain old rocks in those bags. And the children would come forth and, and uh, some of them would take the brown paper bag. They'd got the lesson ahead of time. This one little girl, boy, she, that pretty shiny bag just drew her attention. She grabbed that bag. She opened it up. And the teacher learned a lesson that day. She opened it up and she said, wow, look at these rocks. She'd go over to other kids, look at my rocks. The other kids had their brown bags full of candy. She was proud of her rocks. She was just content with that. That made her happy. That's what we need to learn. We need to learn to be content with such things as we have. If we want to eliminate this concept of 
being envious of others. Envy is so deadly and so dangerous. Envy caused Saul to pursue David and try to take his life. Envy caused the Jews to deliver Jesus up to be crucified. Mark 15 and verse 10. Envy, uh, without question, was a contributing factor in the very first murder, the death of Abel. And if left unchecked, envy will be the downfall of any local church where it rears its ugly, venomous head. In describing the behavior of love in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul said that love does not envy. And both those who provoke envy and those who envy need to adopt the proper perspective when it comes to earthly talents and abilities and wealth and heritage. It's just all temporary. We need an eternal point of view. Because from an eternal perspective, all of us, no matter how rich or how poor or how clean or how dirty or from what station of life, from an eternal perspective, we're all on a level. And we'll all have the same place in heaven. One hope among Christians. No wonder Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 3 verse 26, beginning, for you're all sons of God. I don't care who, the rich, the poor, the slave, the free, you're all sons of God. Through faith in Christ Jesus, because as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you're all one. In Christ. There's a third thing and final thing that I want to impress upon our minds this morning in talking about preventing us from devouring one another. We need to silence the evil speaking. We need to stifle the envious strife. And we need to smother the acceptive spirit. What is an acceptive spirit? Well, spirit speaks of attitude or disposition. Acceptive means highly critical, fault-finding. The concept is found in another one of our one another passages in James chapter 5 and verse 9. James says, do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. It has variously been translated with phrases like grudge not, complain not, murmur not, grieve not. Some people seem to delight in finding fault in others. You notice that? And then venting those faults to other people. You know, my estimation of people like that is they must be miserable people. With no real joy in their hearts or in their service to Christ and others. If they spend time with Christians they haven't seen in a while, the first thing they do afterwards is to begin talking about uh, or talking to others about all their perceived shortcomings of their brethren. If they go to a gospel meeting, the first words out of their mouth when they get in the car is to leave some sort of uh, criticism about the service or the sermon or, or some other element of worship service. And, and with such a person, the same is true locally in relation to their hometown brethren and, and their hometown church. The, the song leader was too fast or too slow or out of tune. The preacher was long-winded. His subject was deep. His tie was too loud. He looked too much like Jim Carrey. I'm sorry, Josh. I, I love you. But the accepted spirit is one that's always on the watch for something to criticize, right? Something to, 
to pick apart. They're not capable of finding good things and bringing those out. They just let those go without saying, right? But boy, you let them find one little thing wrong, you're going to hear about it. And it's usually about petty things, not not scriptural things. Have you ever known such a person? Pray, pray for them. They're miserable. And unless we can get some some joy planted in their hearts, they'll set their brethren on edge. Their influence will spread like wildfire, and before long their local church will have a serious problem on its hands. If things are truly amiss, if someone or, or some church is truly practicing something that is contrary to the Lord's gospel, God has set in order the proper pattern to deal with such things, a pattern that begins with confronting the offender rather than everybody else. Matthew 18, verse 15. But most of the time, when it comes to those with an acceptive spirit, the only things that, that are really being violated are their own opinions and their own preferences. Even preachers are not immune to such a spirit and disposition. Uh, older preachers sometimes like to advise younger preachers to, to pick their battles within the church they serve. It's good advice if properly understood. If there's some point of belief or practice that violates Scripture, that battle must always be fought. In Acts 15, 1 and 2, when those people come in and said, You Gentiles, you can't be saved unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses. While Paul and Barnabas jumped all over that. And with no small dissension and argument, they went up against those Judaizers. In Jude verse 3, we're told that we ought to contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. But uh, but if it's some point of, of belief or practice that merely violates my opinion as to what should be believed or practiced, or, and I can't really give a verse for it, or, or if it's some point that relates more to the way my home church did it when I was growing up, rather than an actual violation of Scripture that I can put my finger on, then I need to just remain silent. Put it out of my mind. Because that's the kind of thing that's torn local churches apart. And I need to put to death that acceptive spirit. When I was growing up in a small church in West Tennessee, at 14 I began preaching meetings and other places. My older brother would drive me to churches in the area. And the first time he took me to, to a small church down in Corinth, Mississippi, and I got down there and I sat there... And uh, they did the strangest thing. They sang one song and then they had a prayer. <laughs> then they had another song and they had the sermon. And then I don't know what else unscriptural thing they did, but look, where I come from, it, it's two songs, a prayer, a song, a sermon, a song, the Lord's Supper. And that was it. And that disturbed me, that church, that unscriptural church. Mixing the things up. And I went back home and I talked to my preacher. And I talked to my Bible teacher. And, and they just, they kind of laughed. And then they explained to me. And then they learned. And, and I learned. That everything they did was just a different way of expediting the commands that God has given us. There are lots of authorized expedients. There are lots of ways to do the right things in the right way that are different from the right way you did the right things all those years ago. And we need to learn that lesson. And that's why where we worship at Southside, that's one of the reasons why we mix things up in our worship service. We try not to get in a rut. There's nothing wrong with that. But what kind of impression does it leave on our younger people? 
we don't want to engender the acceptive spirit in anyone. Because whether that spirit is in the mind of an elder or a preacher or a deacon or a wife or a husband or any Christian, it will always lead to biting and devouring unless it is smothered out, extinguished, eliminated, and replaced with contentment, joy, and edification and graceful speech. Well, that's all I've got. But I want you to know from reading Galatians 5.15 that it's possible for brethren to devour one another. And I want us to remember that God has given us ways to avoid that. In the first place, if there's any evil speaking among us, we need to silence it. If there's any envious strife, just a little, we need to stifle it. And if there's any of this acceptive spirit, we need to smother it. Let's pray. Almighty God, most kind and loving Father in heaven, hallowed be your merciful name. Dear Father, we so thankful to you for Jesus, our Lord, and your Son, who suffered greatly at Calvary for our sins, and we beg that you forgive us of our sins. We're thankful that his precious blood has purchased the church, the Lord's body. We're thankful for this body and this family here and for local churches throughout the world. And we pray, Father, that brethren would not devour one another. Help us always to stand for the truth and to stand against error. But help us, Father, not to become guilty of biting and devouring on trivial matters and on things that are of no spiritual consequence. Help us rather to love one another, to be kind and patient and tender-hearted toward one another, forgiving one another even as you have forgiven us through Christ. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Would take your song books at this time and open them up to the number that has been selected. Rick, what'd you say? Three hundred two, three hundred five. Okay, number three hundred and five. You take your Bible sometimes, just read through Acts chapter two and read about how those first people became Christians. You'll learn how you can become a Christian today. First thing they did was they heard the gospel. Verse fourteen. Peter stood up and began to preach, and then when he finished his sermon, you'll notice it said. When they heard these things. Well, faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of God. It's not going to be zapped into your heart miraculously. But you'll get it through hearing the gospel. Romans ten seventeen. And after they heard, it's pretty clear that many of them believed. Because they were cut to the heart and asked, Men and brethren, what shall we do? They believed. After all, Jesus said in Mark sixteen sixteen, He who believes and is baptized will be saved. In John 8, 24, Jesus said, Unless you believe that I'm He, you'll die in your sins. They heard and they believed. And when they asked the question, What shall we do? Peter answered by saying, Repent. Now that's a, that's a conscious decision to, to change your life. To make that decision. You know, I'm no longer going to serve sin and Satan. I'm going to serve the Savior from this moment on. Repent of your sins. Well, the Bible commands that all men everywhere repent, right? Acts 17 and verse 30. You can go to Luke 13, read verse 3 and 5 and get more on repentance. And then Peter told them in verse 38 of Acts 2, to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. Now, people go in there and they dig around that little word for and they start arguing back and forth. And I tell them, you know, just go on over to Acts 22, 16 and read that one. And tell me what you're going to do with it. Because we get to that great question, what can wash away my sins? 
Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We all agree with that, right? Now, we in the church have been accused of not agreeing with that. But the Bible teaches that very clearly. Revelation 1, 5, Ephesians 1, 7, 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Here's where we disagree. When? At what point does the blood of Jesus wash away my sins? You see, the world say, it's at the point of faith. It's faith only. But James would say, well, even the demons believe and tremble. Are they saved? What about those in John chapter 12 who believed in Jesus but refused to confess him lest they be put out of the synagogue? Surely we're not saying that you can refuse to confess Jesus and be saved. No, no, no. The Bible has a a clearer, more perfect answer of when I come in contact with the blood of Christ. In Acts 22, verse 16, you can read it in any version. I've checked them all. Uh, They still haven't perverted that one enough to make it teach something else. But it's Saul. Saul's sitting there, and this man named Ananias The Lord had spoken to Ananias and told him, you need to go tell Saul something. I've told Saul that he needs to go in the city, and there he'll be told what he must do. And so Ananias comes to Saul, and he says, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Calling on the name of the Lord. Now, you can't get any clearer than that, can you? In fact, that's how you begin to get on the road to heaven. You know, confession of faith isn't mentioned in Acts chapter 2, but it's mandated in Romans 10, 9, and 10. That's with the heart one believes in the righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And so if you want to become a Christian, you need to hear the gospel, believe Jesus to be the Son of God, confess your faith in Him, repent of your sins, and be baptized, and have your sins washed away by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. But you know, as you continue to read in Acts 2, you find that there's more to it. They were remaining faithful, weren't they? They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and prayers and the breaking of bread and so forth. After all, the Lord said in Revelation 2.10, Be faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. So if you're here this morning and you're not part of the body, you're not part of the church, if you've not had Christ's blood wash away your sins in baptism, why not? Your soul's in jeopardy. It's by the grace of God you have this opportunity. You're not promised another one when you leave this building. Take this opportunity. These brethren have made it easy and convenient for you to do so. There's a baptistry here. I'm sure they have clothes you can change. You don't even have to get your own clothes wet. You change into something back here. We can baptize you into Christ this morning. And you can go on your way rejoicing because you've got a hope of heaven in your heart. And all that guilt and burden from the sins you've been carrying around is gone. You have rest for your souls. Maybe you have done that. And as a Christian, you failed on this last part, remaining faithful. If that's so, God wants to forgive you. He wants you back. And if you come back to Him repenting of that sin, whatever it may be, confessing it and asking His forgiveness, Acts 8, 22, 1 John 1, 9. Uh, the Bible says there that He will forgive us of our sins and cleanse. He uses the word cleanse there. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you're here this morning, you're subject to the Lord's invitation in any way. Won't you please come forward now? Have a seat on the front pew as we stand. Sing number 305.